How does the U.S. Department of Energy Loan Office actually work to finance clean energy? Audrey Lee of Microsoft asked the source. Director Jigger Shaw. Hear how he describes the role of the loan office and how you can get involved. Welcome to Grid Forward Chats, a podcast series with industry leaders on what lies ahead for our electric grid. This episode is a live recording from the recent Grid Forward Decarbonization Summit. Thank you, Bryce. Thank you, Jigger. Um, so happy to be here. Uh, so I think, uh, Jigger, you and I first met maybe eight years ago when I was at the California Public Utilities Commission. And I've considered, you may not know this, but I've considered you a mentor ever since. Um, and I remember the con- <laughs> I remember the conversation we had. Um, you, you gave me such a com- confidence boost. Um, which I really needed at the time. I think you encouraged me to make the most of my scattered background because I came from engineering, good policy, wanted to go into business. Um, and that, you know, you encouraged me I didn't need to take a single already defined path. And I think your career definitely attests to that as well. So I hope you've made me, pr- I hope I've made you proud, Jigger. Uh, no, I and remember over the conversation and, uh, and, and your, your path is, is quite inspiring, not just to me, but to, to many. So I very much appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so over the last year, I mean, I, I just make a quick plug for, for Clean Energy for America, but you and I have had the pleasure of working on Clean Energy for Biden and very excited about the outcome of that. Um, I think we grew that from nothing in last April to 17,000 members in a little over the year. Uh, and we now transitioned to Clean Energy for America. So I'm very excited about that. Um, but, you know, we're here today to talk about um, the DOE loan program. Um, and so I'd love to I don't think, I didn't give you an introduction because I don't think you need an introduction, <laughs> to be frank. Um, and I wanted to really use the time to jump right in. And I would just love, I think, for the audience to, um, and for myself um, to learn more about how does the DOE pro- loan program work? Um, how does the loan program office provide financing solutions for, for um, technologies that are ready for commercialization? So if you're okay with that, let's just dive in. I, I um, took this job on March 3rd and uh, have been uh, learning all the idiosyncrasies of the job uh, since then. There's a couple of big uh, themes. One is that the loan programs office is not a source of subsidy, which is I think what a lot of people think. The loan programs office really is a source of liquidity. So we think there are a lot of technologies that are ready for prime time. And those technologies are not getting a second look from commercial debt markets because commercial debt markets are basically saying, I can meet my numbers without doing something new. And so why bother, you know, educating the credit committee, figuring out how to get it through this process when I can just do another solar deal or whatever else, right? And so so the goal for us is to actually step in and say, no, I mean, if a, if, if a technology is ready for prime time, it deserves senior debt, and we're happy to provide that senior debt. But we use the same underwriting criteria as a commercial bank. Um, so So there's no... Uh, lax standards here compared to normal standards. The other thing that we have going for us is we don't require a technology wrap because we've got um, 10,000 engineers and scientists who are the smartest you know, folks in the world uh, working for the Department of Energy and through the national labs that can actually evaluate the technology and tell us whether it's going to work. So in general, like, so we take technology risk from that perspective, but we're not really taking the risk as much as we're evaluating and realizing it's not as risky as everyone thinks it is. And then the last thing I'd say is that, you know, as I've come into uh, this position, you know, clearly the Biden administration has 
a number of top level messages around Justice 40 uh, and Build Back Better and other things. And so the loan programs office has not really spent a lot of time on figuring out how to be relevant to Justice 40 uh, before I got here. And so we've done a lot of work there and, you know, realized that a lot of the work around for quarter 2222, a lot of the uh, distributed energy resource work, a lot of the um, electric vehicle work, et cetera, is all really uh, in a good position to have a nexus with the Justice 40 work. And so we spent a lot of time on figuring out how our loan or loan products can be relevant to that work. Since you brought it up, I'd love to, to dig in there. I think a couple things, um, when McKinsey estimates for uh, cumulative distributed energy resource capacity in the U.S. is going to reach 387 gigawatts by 2025. So it's very exciting that you guys are tackling the DER side. Um, and since a lot of my experience is on that side as well, um, I'd love to learn more about the $4.5 billion in loan guarantee authorities under Title 17 that you have under the Energy Policy Act of, uh, of 2005. So as you think about FERC 2222, you know, what technologies are included, what distributed solutions that have not typically been funded by the loan um, guarantees are you considering, um, and, and how do you see your role in this massive scale-up of DER, um, DER applications? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and maybe some um, structure would be helpful, and then we can go into the value streams. So, yeah, you know, the loan programs office needs a borrower, <laughs> plain and simple, right? So we can't help an individual who needs a thousand-dollar loan for their refrigerator, right? What we can do is help someone like loan pal now good leap or solar mosaic or sunrun or you know all these other companies expand into appliance financing and give them a 300 million dollar loan against this broader set of criteria where they you know today they're not allowed to really fund things below 650 fico score they're not really allowed to help in puerto rico you know etc cetera, etc cetera. i think they've got a cap of like three percent of their loans can be in this non-conforming bucket. So we can make it 25% of the loans can be in the non-conforming bucket because there's a lot of data that shows that people actually pay their bills on time, even if they have lower FICO scores, et cetera. So, so we actually need a borrower. So that borrower can be those folks. That borrower can be municipalities and cities. So a lot of folks have come to us because they've said, hey, you know, we, we are finding that 87% of appliances are, um, are purchased in emergency situations, right? Your refrigerator stops working and you have to buy a new one. And a lot of folks don't have $800 in savings. Um, and so um, they often participate in on-the-spot financing, which can often be 30% interest rates, right? And so there's ways for us to use our money to intervene there and provide much lower interest rates as well as longer terms to make the payments lower. And the cities would facilitate that for us, right? And then the third group that has expressed an interest in this product is you know, municipal utilities, investment utilities, rural co-ops, who also wanna participate in this. And so, so the repayment of the loan to us really comes from the fact that people pay for their appliances and we're providing them cheaper financing to pay for their appliances, that's it, right? And then, and then the innovation um, nexus with the loan programs office is that we're requiring all of these devices to be registered with the DER platform. So whether the DER platform is actually getting compensated, right, is a separate matter, right? Like they have to go to the public service commission, they have to work with utilities, they gotta figure all that stuff out. But we can require that all of the appliances are actually technically registered to somebody who could dispatch that 
dispatch the, the, the resource if needed. And then they now have an economic incentive, of course, to intervene in the rate cases and try to get you know, better compensation for the, for the services that they're providing, right? So that, that's really how we get at it. And then the last thing I would say is that, you know, for us, electric vehicles are an appliance, right? So it's not just refrigerators or air conditioners or water heaters. For us, you know, electric vehicles are an appliance and probably the biggest place where we can make a difference, right? There's a lot of people who, you know, uh, buy subprime autos. It's roughly about $2 billion a month. And, um, and those folks generally uh, pay $700 a month for their car payment. And, you know, through our financing, we could drop it to 350. So um, you could imagine putting $350 a month into the pockets of low modern income consumers is, you know, a very large amount of money, like much more than $10 a month they could save, let's say, through community solar. So, um, so not that, you know, community solar is bad, but just, I mean, just in terms of like large amounts of money that we could put back in the pockets of the American people. Yeah, I think I think that's super exciting. And just the synergies, right? The more you electrify the home, the more uh, rooftop solar you can put on the home um, and, and ensure the resiliency with the battery. Um, and, and the really exciting, I think, to um, expand the accessibility to electric vehicles. It's not, you know, just wealthy people having Teslas because there are there are real savings um, in terms of fuel savings and environmental benefits. Um, so I think that's that's one that's very exciting. Um, and maybe we can dig into a little bit more on the environmental justice that, uh, side of things. And, you know, you talked a lot about low-income households and really helping them reduce um, their electricity impact. Just curious if, if you want to dive in more to, um, you know, what specifically about the loan program, the loan office, loan <laughs> office programs um, are you, are you uh, working on to, to specifically address disadvantaged communities? Well, I think that, you know, as a commercial bank, we're limited, right, in what we can do. Mm -hmm. So we have to have a borrower. We have to meet the threshold of reasonable prospect of repayment. But what we're able to do is really highlight exactly how one would do this, right? There's multiple layers in, in um, uh, society, right? Microsoft, for instance, has made huge commitments in this area. Uh, through a number of partners and, you know, they're feeling their way through how much more they want to do and in what ways they want to do it, et cetera. And it's not just Microsoft, but there are hundreds of other companies who've made these huge commitments to justice uh, in the wake of, you know, George, George Floyd's death, who have done very little to back it up with real dollars, not because their intention was not there, but just because the opportunity for them to actually make good on those promises have not been presented. And so you can imagine um, once we've laid out this justice framework, uh, companies have come to us and said, hey, can we provide our credit support to provide the credit support to the city so this doesn't look like debt to the city, but looks like debt to our company? And we trust that Sunrun or Goodleap or other people can actually do the math to make sure that you would never use that credit support, right? Mm -hmm. But the fact that like the credit support's there means the interest rate is lower to the borrower, right? The city or the, um, or the, you know, um, the solar financing platform or the, uh, um, the municipal utility or the rural co-op, right? So, so some companies have come in there. Then you have another layer of people who are uh, in the philanthropy world, right? So a lot of foundations have joined the justice movement and then a lot of corporate foundations have joined the justice movement, right? So, so then, so now you say, well, the cost of capital when you have a credit guarantee to the from the loan programs office is let's say two percent right for a long period of time 
that's great. But we have to charge 8% because that is what it would take to make sure that, because there's going to be some losses in the portfolio, we want to make sure that there's enough spread there so that the guarantee never gets relied on, right? And so that all of the losses in the program are funded by the, you know, 600 basis points of extra interest you charge above the cost of capital, right? So that's great. Well, now a foundation could come in and say, well, can you drop your interest rate to 4% because we're going to provide this money and we'll pay for the losses for the first you know, five years um, in order to get the interest rates lower to people, right? So then there's a philanthropy layer in there, right? And then the next layer is around entrepreneurship and wealth creation, right? And so the question becomes like, okay, fine, we may need to use trusted partners like a Sunrun or uh, a good leap or other people, right? But the question really becomes like, can we make sure that like um, businesses of color can get access to providing the services, right? The installation services, the sales services, the O&M services, et cetera, so that they're actually participating in the wealth creation that um, that gets created across, you know, the entire spectrum, right? And And so a lot of this is really about us creating the framework and then helping people plug into the framework because, People are like, you know, like confused. They're like, well, we'd love to help, but we don't actually understand how Microsoft would help with the loan programs office, right? Or, you know, we don't understand how the McKnight Foundation or Energy Foundation would work with the loan programs office. Like, and so, so once this is actually really flushed out, which we're in the middle of publishing here in the next uh, month or so, then folks can plug in and say, well, you know, we're happy to provide our credit support because we're flush with cash and we have the ability to provide credit support. Or, you know, we're happy to provide, you know, the, the credit guarantees. Or actually, we're, a, you know, a group that actually has mapped out a lot of the uh, entrepreneurs that, you know, that are uh, of color and that, like, actually want to uh, participate in this program, right? So we want to make sure that we make sure that they're giving a fair, given a fair chance to participate in, in, in providing the services, right? So, so that allows people to, like, really plug in. And that, that is, I think, what we've found within the administration is that a lot of this is around intentionality, right? And making sure that you're being intentional about giving people opportunities to plug in, as opposed to just assuming that, you know, things are going to be better. Pardon this quick interruption. Do you like the in-depth interviews on Grid Forward Chats? Subscribe to our channel on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Podbean apps. That way, you don't miss a single chat. And learn more about Grid Forward at gridforward.org. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and case in point, you know, Microsoft has traditionally invested in large renewable PPA projects to offset our um, electricity usage at our data centers. And we recently did a community solar project with Solar Systems, and we're continuing to yeah. look at what other opportunities we have to invest that, that get us our emissions offset and help us decarbonize, but also benefits. Um, these communities. So kind of, I guess I'm going to zoom out in terms of the the distribution, the, the home level, the customer level to the distribution level and the transmission and the grid. Um, you know, there's a huge shortfall. I think the American Society of Civil Engineers says the U.S. is facing a $200 billion grid investment shortfall by 2029. So I was just curious, you know, as we zoom out and look at the distribution side of the transmission side, um, what is your what is your office um, going to do to con- to, to ameliorate this, this shortfall? How are you approaching grid infrastructure issues? Well, I think one thing we are doing is, is as a department, we're looking at um, the full suite of solutions, right? One of the things that's come out of the LA 100 study and the Chris Clack study that was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation is it showed that actually one way to ameliorate the transmission issue is actually to invest more in distributed generation and demand flexibility, which we just talked yeah. about with 
appliances and the virtual power plant. So I think it's important to note that like the, uh, a heavy-handed, um, we're just going to build stuff approach doesn't really work. So there has to be some intelligence put into the grid, smart transmission technologies, other things. And then we're still short, which means that we have to actually still build uh, transmission lines. I'd say the other thing that was announced by the White House was around um, the use of existing right-of-ways, right? So the Department of Transportation mm -hmm. has identified a number of existing right-of-ways with rail and highway uh, corridors. And using those existing right-of-ways, you actually can build relatively quickly without a lot of NEPA issues, without a lot of, um, you know, without any seizing of anyone's land or, or, or whatnot, right? Uh, eminent domain issues, et cetera, right? So, so that's been quite fascinating. And then the question becomes like, well, how much does it cost to use those right-of-ways, right? Because some of it has to be undergrounded, undergrounding costs five times more than, than overground lines. And so, uh, but, you know, but the thing that I think we've come to realize is that, um, is that, you know, comparing the cost of a solution that we can implement with a solution that hasn't been implemented for 15 years is kind of a fool's errand. It's like, well, this solution is theoretically 1.8 cents kilowatt hour, but we can't build it. So I guess, like, what are we talking about here, right? So I think there's just a recognition by the administration that, like, you know, we just have to solve it. Like, you're not going to decarbonize the grid by 2035 unless we solve it uh, soon and then, you know, start construction over the next 10 years. Um, so I think that is a big breakthrough. And then the loan programs office has, um, you know, uh, its own resources by which to provide a loan guarantee against transmission. Because what you find is for a lot of these transmission line projects, there's an if you build it, they will come problem. So a lot of the transmission lines, generators don't want to subscribe the lines because they're just not sure they're going to get built. And so you really need to start construction of the lines before you can get the, the subscribers. But the debt providers are, are saying, well, we're not going to provide debt to this line until you subscribe. So we have the ability to model whether that line is going to be useful. And then we can actually take the merchant risk on the line. So we can start construction of the line, knowing full well, because our model says so, that the line is going to be used over the next four years. We just you know, have to wait for the generating resources and everything else to be built and, and to use the line. So, so we're playing a pretty essential role in fixing that sort of chicken and egg situation for existing lines. So the White House has published 22 lines that they thought were near term that, you know, could be built. And, you know, we've already had about, had six of them interested in applying to the loan programs office. One of them has already done that. So, and we're talking to the rest of the lines to see whether they're interested in our program. Absolutely, that's that's so critical. I mean, from a Microsoft perspective, we want we want better transmission connection and transformation capacity, but we have to build data centers. We need that certainty. <laughs> we need to know that the power will be there to interconnect when the data center is ready. Um, so I think having the government play that important role um, is, is very important. Um, I want to hit on one more topic before I let you um, wrap things up for us. But you know what? I'm curious what role you think hydrogen can play. I mean, can you and, and can you tell us more about the DOE Energy Earthshot Initiative um, and how the loan program office plays in this initiative and commercialization? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the Earthshot program writ large is something that has really come out of the learnings that we've had for the last 15 years, right? So I think that there's been a body of science for a long time that has known about the learning curve, you know, uh, uh, learning by doing, uh, you know, phenomenon, right? Like for every doubling mm -hmm. of cumulative experience, you get like a 12% reduction in cost. 
And um, and so, you know, it's it's something that we invented, you know, that we realized in the 60s. So, but like for somehow we got super surprised when it worked in solar and wind and in lithium ion batteries. <laughs> and I'd say that the Department of Energy is no longer surprised by this phenomenon. And so, and, and not that we were before, but like maybe we acted like we were. And so, so there will always be a need for fundamental R&D, right? So whether it's improving hydrogen or improving solar, improving wind, like you always need to keep the R&D engine alive. But what we also recognize is you actually need to just start deploying. So hydrogen is ready to go now. It's bankable, it's cost effective. Um, it's at, let's call it $7 a kilogram today. And uh, at that price, roughly 3% of all hydrogen shipped in the United States is now cost effective without subsidies, right? 3% is not a bad number, right? The global hydrogen industry is, you know, something on the order of $120 billion a year. So, so to build out just meeting 3% of the hydrogen needs in the United States is probably a $5 billion investment, right? So, so we're supporting that through the loan programs office. We're supporting that through the Department of Energy. And we have a learning by doing analysis that shows that just through the cumulative doublings of experience in that, we're going to get to an 80% cost reduction by 2030, right? So, like, so part of what Earthshots is recognizing is, yes, we need to continue to invest in R&D, invest in uh, ARPA-E and all these other things. But also, yes, once we start deploying at scale, the costs come down relatively predictably. And so we should start predicting that they're going to come down in cost. And so then the question is, what role does hydrogen play in the broader uh, ecosystem? And I think for a lot of people, hydrogen has been this boogeyman around ways in which to keep the oil industry alive or whatever it is that you know folks talk about. But I think that in general, the recognition is that hydrogen is an essential molecule that we use for chemical production, that we use for fertilizers, that we use for uh, you know refineries, lots of other things. And so just by taking all the excess electricity um, and, the, and the excess capacity in the grid and turning it into hydrogen when wholesale prices turn negative or wholesale prices are, um, you know, low, right? That's basically a reverse peaker plant, right? I mean, right now you run a peaker plant um, when electricity prices go up, right? Now, this would be like a reverse peaker plant, you would run the hydrogen when electricity prices go down. Initially, obviously, you'd run it 24-7, but over time you would do, do it that way. Then once you have hydrogen, you can actually sell it into the broader hydrogen market. So you never have to return it back to the grid, right? I think there's always been this round trip efficiency argument, which never made any sense. Like you don't turn it back into electricity. Now, some people might, because they might say, well, you know, we need hydrogen fuel cells for our data center, um, or we need this or that, like bloom energy technology or plug power fuel cells or whatever it is. But there's a lot of people who are just gonna say, no, we've just taken that, on an opportunistic basis out of the electricity grid. And now we're curtailing less renewables and we're just moving it into ammonia. And so we're gonna make fertilizer. And that I think is the real power of hydrogen is it's basically a form of long duration storage. Exactly, I think, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I think we we're plodding along 60% clean electricity, 70%, but we have to get to 100 and we can't fall off the path if we don't have those solutions like hydrogen to get us all the way there. We need to we need to act now. So it's, it's very exciting that you and, and the rest of DOE is working on that. Um, we have a few minutes left. I'd love to, you know, let you close out and, and explain to people, if, you know, if the audience out here is interested in this, this session is being recorded. 
if people are interested in collaborating with the loan program office with you, how do they get started? What do they do? Yeah, it's a great question. And so the first thing I would say is that, you know, the loan programs office is has a very broad mandate. It has been narrowed over the years through a bunch of regulations and red tape. All of that is being broadened back out to our statute. So, um, so if you have an idea that leads to a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, you likely qualify for the loan programs office. And so a lot of what I've been doing is I've had over a hundred one-on-one conversations with CEOs and management teams to just hear their pitch. And as a result, we're getting two you know, loan applications a week coming into the loan programs office. So it's fantastic, right? We got $7 billion of applications in last month. We expect another 7 billion to come in this month. And so it's great, you know, we're restarting the loan programs office after a dormant period for about 10 years. And so it's fantastic. And so what I would suggest to people is that it really doesn't matter what the idea is. I mean, I've got people pitching me cricket protein because it's cheaper (laughs) than beef, right? Now, I have no idea whether it's going to qualify for the loan programs office, but they're coming in and they're putting an application in and I'll have our legal group do the analysis. And like, and so it really does matter that all of these entrepreneurs and people who are looking for support on the senior debt side for their dreams and visions, like, you know, take advantage of the opportunity to just call us and brainstorm with us to see if it works. Great. Thank, thank you. Really, as a, as a U.S. citizen, I really appreciate you serving, being a public servant and, and being so open and being so open and, and very hopeful um, and optimistic about our future. So thank you so much, Jigger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Grid Forward Chats, our podcast series with industry leaders on what's driving grid modernization ahead. Check out our website at gridforward.org to learn more about our podcasts, virtual events, becoming a member, and our mission to promote grid innovation and accelerate modernization across our region.